At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is my dear friend Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic. I am Mark Bigney, no longer plague bearing. I have emerged the other end of this COVID 19, and I can attest that the vaccines do indeed work. It was unpleasant in the extreme. Thank you all for your words of support. But at no point did I worry that I was going to die or have to go to the hospital. So thank you, Pfizer. Thank you, Moderna. I appreciate it a great deal. I'm also very grateful that we, not alone in the podcasting space, but we never pretended as though the pandemic was over. <laughs> and so all the precautions, all the encouragement to stay safe, we definitely continue with that. I continue to mask in public. I, in point of fact, one of the uh, the, the speculation as to where I contracted COVID-19, best guesses are one of two places, either shopping for groceries, masking in public, or getting my COVID-19 booster shot, <laughs> masking in public. At any rate, thank you again for all the words of support for all the dear listeners, and it is great to be back with you. Did you miss me, Walker? Always, Mark. I had to play plebs. Sweaty tryhards. <laughs> plebs? Wait, the plebs are sweaty tryhards? No, it's plebs slash... Oh, okay, okay, okay. So the only the only filthy casuals were plebs. That's right. So what does that make me, a patrician? <laughs> Certain noblesse well, oblige. You, you, it's like you jumped right to that, so let's go with that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I grew up poor, Walker, so uh, Patrician, I'm not. Anyway, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the Aurus, the as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment, what we reviewed last year. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. And then finally, our topic of the week, which is random events. Those, those event cards, those event tiles. The, the games we played for the last two weeks. Well, effectively, yes. Thank you for highlighting uh, my my little so my unintentional sojourn. I would have recorded remotely, uh, but the coughing was rather continuous, so decided not to. So, Walker, what did we review last year? We reviewed exactly one year ago, Bullet Heart. 
so I haven't returned to it. And not not because it's not a great game. It's just there's there's a lot of new stuff to play and a lot of other things to play. I don't own it. We had a copy. Now we no longer do. But if someone would bring it to the table, I'd be more than happy to play it. Yes. I would be happy to play it. It's a very, very quick game. It never... One of one of my disappointments with it... I shouldn't say it's a frustration. One of my disappointments was that it, it never really felt at all like the genre that it was aping. And this isn't necessarily meaning that I, I disliked it necessarily. It's just I have a great deal of affection for shoot-em-up games, or shmups, as they're called. Or even more particularly, the cute-em-ups, as exhibited by the Toho Project. I play a lot of, of, of shoot-em-ups. I'm not very good at them, but then again, I repeat myself by simply saying that I play them. But it feels much more like a puzzle game. And I thought it was a clever puzzle game. It was very interesting in how you had to manipulate the pieces. I like real-time games in general. And that that aspect was very satisfying. The co-op modes didn't really please me in the, quite the same way that the competitive modes did. But it was, it, was, it was a fine and charming game, and I'd happily play it again. Yeah, I love how the fact that the better you did, the more stuff you heaped on the next player. I didn't like the fact that, you know, just my same old thing where... You don't actually get to see what the other players are doing. Yes. So they might be doing something that's not quite... It was extraordinarily and literally heads down. Very much Because there's this real-time phase, and you're just manipulating all these pieces. And so, despite the fact that there was direct player interaction, it felt like there was absolutely none. You're in your own little universe. You and your bag. And that was it. (laughs) Which is one of the reasons why I felt that the solitaire mode was somewhat disappointing. You had to have the interaction, albeit somewhat indirect with the other players... In order for the game to really shine, in my estimation, but at the same time, you didn't really feel like you were interacting with them in a substantive, much less social way. I do like how they made all the characters different, made them sort of have their own little gimmick, and it sort of tied into the theme. But I really liked the art of Bullet Heart. Uh, a number of people, I haven't seen it in person, but the one, the first expansion, Bullet Orange, some people had some concerns with the representation of women there. I haven't really looked at Bullet Star, which is the next follow-up. Uh, level 99 games has mostly been pretty good, but sometimes they have missteps on the, on, in that regard. But as I say, Bullet Heart, the set that we played, was perfectly charming. But indeed, the mere fact that I haven't felt the need to go search out Bullet Orange or Bullet Star, I think is an indication of the fact that although I'd be happy to play again, it wasn't really something I'd go and, and find. And that was Bullet Heart by Joshua Van Lanningham and Level 99 Games. Walker, what did play last week? Or even the week before that? I got to play a game called Tidal Blades Banner Festival. I've talked about it before when it, when they announced it's coming out soon. And uh, it's very much like Brian Boru. It's a sort of a trick, I don't want to say trick-taking game, because, you know, they've strayed so far in these new games from, like, the traditional trick-taking. It's, it's I guess you could still. What makes you inclined to compare it to trick-taking games? Well, because there's, there is a sort of a lead suit, and, you know, suits go down from there, but it's... It's so far away from Euchre and or Bridge, where, where, where it's like a single suit is Trump and and it's high-low. This is, there's a Trump color, and then as you go around the wheel, they get relatively weaker as they go. So whoever plays the Trump suit of that time, will of that, what they call, a, of that round, I guess, uh, will win for sure. And then it goes around the color wheel, and everyone who played that color, it goes down there, and you sort of rank the cards. I see. And like Brian Boru, you want to try to get into different categories. You might want to win sometimes. You might want to lose. You have these jet skis that are going around the circle. And if you win, you always go as far as where the gate is, which is, you know, the Trump color. 
So sometimes you want that and sometimes you don't because you could be right beside it. And you'll move one space or you can go all the way around the track and you get to upgrade cards when you do that. Sounds like a built-in catch-up mechanism. Uh, I wouldn't say so because it's a very small part of the game. That's just that's just like one little flipping of your okay. mini, mini deck because there's all sorts of there's a there's a uh, area control thing going on and and there are all these special abilities on your cards just like Brian Boru. If you lose, then you get to do the special ability on your card. You also get to move the gate around the track on how far it's going to go and into what color it's going to go. You play eight rounds and you have a scoring where you score like the the area majority of the two halves and then you bring those back and they each half has also has a tower where you don't have to clear your area majority i'm very surprised about this game i very much enjoyed it. i played it twice it's unfortunate that it has the title blades name to it only because i don't think title blades hit as well as some people think it did and i think when people see the name on it they might bounce off it and not even try it i really think that this game stands on its own it's designed by J.B. Howell and Michael Mahelzik. It's put out by Druid City Games and, and Lucky Duck Games. I would, you should definitely give this a try. I'm looking forward to showing it to you. I'm looking forward to trying it. Also has this little like mini fruit game, just like, you know, the squishy fruit in the in the main you game. Gotta, you gotta have squishy fruit. Yeah, so it has like a little pool of squishy fruit in the middle and, you know, all these different areas. Because when you do the, you put your discs in for the age, uh, area majority. They also give you like benefits and some of it is getting squishy fruit. Whenever the little pool empties, whoever has the most gets that many points. Maybe I should make like a that. super cut of you saying squishy fruit S for 45 minutes. Squishy fruit. Anyway, Title Blades Banner Festival. If you have a chance to play it, definitely try it out. Surprised me. It's done quick. Very interesting trick-taking game. Got to try Rift Force Beyond. This is the expansion to Rift Force, the two-player card dueling game by Carlo Bartoloni. I decided to try the Solitaire version. As long-time listeners know, there are two things that I ask for in solitaire versions of board games. I ask, number one, that it be easy to execute, and number two, that it feel as close as possible to the original source material. Not that I'm doing some very different thing. That was one of my objections that I had with Bullet Heart. With Rift Force Beyond, it absolutely satisfies the first criterion. The AI is incredibly easy to execute. You set up a, a difficulty scaling at the beginning of the game to determine what the cards will do, and you can decide how powerful you want the various card reactions to be. When you're playing the normal game of Rift Force in two-player, and indeed when you're managing your own suits when you're playing Solitaire, the AI doesn't manage special powers. They don't have any special powers whatsoever. All the suits work the same way. And that level of abstraction is great. It's a great way of offloading the uh, mental energy that I could be devoting towards executing an AI instead of favoring to maximizing my own combos. And indeed, that is the area in which it feels most unlike the core game, but I don't mind all that much because the AI will just flood the zone with cards. There's this lovely bit of tempo management in normal game of Rift Force when you're playing two players. When do you draw back up? When do you make a push? When do you execute? When do you not? And in the context of the AI, you know that they're going to refresh on a regular cycle. And so there's no psychology or second guessing, as you might imagine, in such cases. But as a consequence, there's greater emphasis on you making the best use of the special powers of your four suits. And so it becomes a little bit more of a puzzle with respect to how to execute combos and how to execute the most amount of damage in the shortest amount of time because all the other factors are in favor of the AI. Time is on their side and they're probably not going to be in a position whereby you can control the board in your favor. So I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought as a solo experience, it was it was very good. It was a very clever AI system, extremely simple to execute. We're talking about a couple of pages here. It's certainly a very, very far cry from a David Turkse type of experience. And it felt 
interestingly different from the core game, as opposed to just radically different from and uh, therefore alien. I do love those almost Knizia-esque elements of tempo and deciding when to draw up that are characteristic of the two-player game of Rift Force. But the absence, when I first noticed the absence from playing Solitaire, I was very worried. But then when I saw what it was forcing me to do in terms of optimizing my card plays, I was somewhat pleasantly surprised. Now, because it is Rift Force, and I'm terrible at Rift Force, the AI, even on the easiest difficulty, uh, completely spanked me. But uh, that, I think, is another indication that it, the AI is somewhat like a normal game of Rift Force. So what, who, who am I to complain? So I'm very, very pleased, all told, with the uh, expansion content so far in Rift Force Beyond. I like the new factions, for the most part. I like the solo version. I'm really looking forward to trying it in team play version. Normally, I'm not a fan of taking two-player games and then blowing them up into team versions, especially since teammates don't have as much to do. But again, the rules for Rift Force and team play aren't just, well, take a two-player game and chop it up into two. So that's further positive experiences with Rift Force Beyond by Carlo Bertolini and One More Time Games. So you and I got to try out Turing Machine. This is sort of like a physical computer. It was very, we just played sort of one round. You sort of make your computer. You have like three questions in this particular scenario. It knows what the number is and you're trying to guess. So your first sort of guess is just a shot. Any number between 111 and 555. Well, not any number. It, it's it's tricky. Any digit can be through one through five. Correct. So 492, although a number between 111 and 555 is not a valid guess. I see what you're saying now. My mistake. Three-digit number, under five. Five or under. Sure. Reset. All right. <laughs> then they have a, a varying number of questions. I think this is where the barrier is going to be in this game. Oh, is, boy. Is, is it ever. Is parsing these questions and then understanding how to teach those questions to players. Because everyone's mind works differently in how they accept. So very on a, ver- in a very basic one is, uh, is the number less than, greater than, or equal to four. So you put and by it, number, you mean one of the digits. One of the digits. So my input number was three. So it's obviously less than, than four. So it's not going to be greater than four. And it's not four. So it's not going to be that answer. So the answer I'm asking, is it less than four? And I put the little screen in behind my number. And it'll give me either a check mark or an X. So if it's an X, it's going to be either equal to or greater than. And if it's a check mark, then it is less than four. It doesn't mean that my three is right but it means that it is going to be less than four and sort of figuring out that sort of association. And that's just the very basic type of question. There's much more complicated types of questions. And I'm just wondering if it's going to be hard for people to parse at first, because it's very different than almost anything that, you know what I mean? That's out there. It's a very strange logic puzzle. And indeed the physical computer is how you make it a competitive experience without the need for any kind of mastermind or, or, or clue giver or anything like that. The physical design is ingenious. The way they've actually made it so that it is literally a physical touring machine to give you yes-no answers to these various questions, the engineering behind it I find thoroughly impressive. I'm blown away with the ingenuity of that. I'm fine. I'm thinking almost as if it was a in sort of an algorithm where they had the questions. Oh, must must have been. They didn't do this they, by hand. Yeah, and they had the cards, and it said, "Well, here's your here's your variety of of puzzles, right? You can, right. This is here are the answers, and these are the cards that they would use, type thing." But the difficulty is, I think you're quite right to highlight, different people think differently. And when I first read the description of Turing Machine, I read the paragraph, and then I read it again, and then I read it again. It's like, I understood none of this. Okay. And then I mentally filed it away with, I'll wait and see once the game is published. And sure enough, 
you gave what I think was a reasonably good explanation, and then I tried to reparse that in a way that I understood. You didn't understand my reparsing. Meanwhile, Huey didn't understand your explanation or the reparsing. And we were all sitting there trying to find a way so I could make sure that I understood, and so you could make sure that everyone at the table understood, find a way to explain how the game operated, how the game just functioned, in a way that all three of us could understand at once. In that challenge, we failed. And the biggest difficulty, I think you're right, is that you could put in, you could input a guess for a given digit, and a given card will tell you yes, and that's not telling you that your guess is correct. What that's telling you is that your guess is in the same category as the actual answer is, and the categories are defined by these clue cards. Anyway, that's the best shot that I had of explaining it, but again, it doesn't work to get anybody, like, when you're explaining code names, usually there's a bit of, okay, wait, so what, what's going on? But then you get past it, and then everything goes. Turing Machine ain't code names. It's not trying to be code names. I was just using that as an example of a simple game where sometimes it's, it's relatively difficult to explain the conceit. Turing Machine is a very simple game in terms of its overall structure, but it just getting the execution right and so that people understand what the Turing machine is in point of fact telling them, a bit of a hurdle. An interesting one pedagogically, I just don't know how interesting it is. I, I would never bring this to a mixed game night. I, I It would be... Because like people can get very frustrated and just bounce off real hard. And I, I think I mentioned this to you before, but I, I'm, I'm wondering if almost another barrier might be that you you, you don't understand what these physical things are capable of telling you. Sure. You know what I mean? You look down at it, it's like, that that can't be right because there's no way, <laughs> there's no way these little punch cards with holes are going to tell me whether, <laughs> you know, this whole complicated thing. Well, I, mu- I must Computers not be, started with punch cards. I it's must great. not it be understanding. Vacuum tubes. Yeah, exactly. We haven't even talked about the core gameplay. The core gameplay is about efficiently finding ways to guess numbers that will give you the most amount of information given the available clues. It's like, okay, I need to know both whether the second digit is even or odd, and I need to know whether the sum of the first and third digits are less less than, equal to, or greater than the value of the, the middle digit. Okay, How, what are the, what's the guess that I can come up with based on what I've guessed before that I can get the most amount of information? That's the core gameplay. It's, it, you know, it's a logic puzzle, and, and, and that part, it's fine. Mostly the cleverness is in terms of the physical execution. I would encourage you, if you're at all curious about introducing this to people, be prepared to try to explain this in a number of different ways. Because, again, it's it's like one of those fundamental math problems. You remember in high school when when the, when that math, when a math teacher, at least a good math teacher, would be like, okay, this is how you do the thing. I don't get it. It's like, okay, well, here's another way to think about it. You just keep trying until something gives. That's my analogy. Just so. Turing machine. Is designed by Fabian Gridel and Johan Levitt. Published by the Scorpion Masque. I got to play Roll Camera, the filmmaking board game. This is a review copy we got from the designer. Designed by Malachi Rykempen and published by Keen Bean Studios. And as somebody with uh, some degree of experience in the film industry, uh, allow me to explain about the movie business. The natural condition is one of insurmountable obstacles on the road to imminent disaster. Strangely enough, it all turns out well. And Roll Camera, the filmmaking board game, is a cooperative game about making a movie. Fundamentally, it's about dice allocation. You start off with a budget. You start off with a certain number of turns. There are various ways to turn money into time or time into money or sacrifice quality. Time is money, Mark. Time is money, basically. And at the end of the, the game, either ends when you run out of time or money or when you complete five scenes. And then if the movie is either of sufficient quality 
Or if it's the worst movie that anyone has ever made and so it's so bad it's good, you win. Roll Camera gets by primarily on its charm, which is great because it has charm in abundance. It is thoroughly, thoroughly amusing, both in terms of its visual design, in terms of its conceit, and in terms of the scenarios depicted on the cards. Like, for example, in the first game I played, I was able to take care of a, of a time crunch by hiring a secondary film crew of monkeys who then filmed the necessary scenes. All the cards are rendered in a, I, I think based on the fact that it's Keen Bean Studios, I think they're supposed to be kind of sort of beans. They're these blobs, but full of personality, these cartoon blobs that represent all manner of uh, scene inputs. In order to film a scene, what you need to do is build sets and then allocate dice in a little spatial puzzle, which is really, really cool. You can then sort of rearrange the tiles of your sets. You have to make sure that you have the right values you need in order to film the scene. I need to have two actors, a film crew, and some visual effects, but they have to be arranged in the right way. It's really interesting and very, very simple, but very easy to grok all, all at the same time. It was so engaging and so delightful, I wanted to play immediately again with the expansion. Also, we got that as, as part of the review copy, which makes everything into a B-movie. Now, as a consequence of this, you have to ha satisfy certain genre requirements. So what would have been a scene before, and all the scenes are rendered with very, very cute little bean art, as I said. But now, you can say, well, now it's a Western scene, because that, that scene now has somebody wearing a cowboy hat. Just so. And literally, it's just represented by sometimes scenes get extra tokens on them, like cowboy hats that are scaled to the little bean pictures. And so after you film the scene, you arrange things so that that person crying in the rain, it's a sci-fi scene because they're holding a robot head now. Or it's a horror scene because there's a bat in the background. Or it's a fantasy scene because they're a wizard. It's just, it's really, I, 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 I'm emphasizing the delight of the physical design because that is a lot of the joy that you get out of roll camera. But it's not a complaint. I'm not saying that the gameplay is deficient. The gameplay gets done what it needs to get done. And at the end of the day, you're left with these adorable little scenes. And it encourages you at the end of the game to tell a story about what your movie's actually about. I love this in context with this new AI technology. Because the monkey things make sense. Because now with this technology, you just type in monkey equals human. And it just <laughs> reformats it and you're good to go. I don't know if that's how real life works. But uh, I'll take your word for it. You know more about this than I do. So Roll Camera was a delightful experience. People who are concerned about the so-called quarterbacking problem, the alpha gamer problem, there's not a whole lot that Roll Camera does to get away from that other than one gameplay element of these action cards. You're not allowed to talk about your action cards, but anybody can trigger a group meeting and then everyone plays one and then whoever's turn it is picks one of the cards to actually execute. And uh, I, again, a delightful little bit of theming. Everybody has a social power that doesn't actually impact the game, but it's printed on their role. Nice. So if you're the producer, you can insist that everyone call you uh, Mr. or Ms. or presumably Mix, but they don't say that on the on the actual title, producer. If you are the director, you can insist that everyone say anything with more emotion, uh, things like that. And... Ultimately, I, I find role, player, uh, role camera delightful. At this stage, I am not certain if I will continue to find it delightful past, say, half a dozen plays or so, because, again, the charm is kind of baked into its conceit and a lot of the components, and I don't know if that's going to wear thin. But I'm very, very eager to, to play it again. I would like to show it to you, Walker. And I'm very pleased to, to have tried Roll Camera, the filmmaking board game. How would you compare this to, was it Million Dollar Script we had before? We did have Million Dollar Script I before. I really enjoyed that, right, because it was like a very much a role-playing type game. Very much sort of like pick up, you know, at the very last, you know, like quick, that type of game. This is a dice allocation game with a lot of the same satirical thematic elements 
but no actual roleplay baked into the design in terms of the execution of the game. And as a consequence, you know, the, one of the concerns I had with Million Dollar Script was that it, effectively it, it, it had the same kind of performative pressure that a lot of people don't like to live up to in the context of immediately performing improv. Some people love that, some people don't. One of the strengths of board games, broadly speaking, is you can put a board game in front of a whole bunch of strangers and they don't have to perform, they don't have to dance for their dinner, as it were. And I feel like Roll Camera, in the little flourishes in terms of, of the little bit of meta rolls on, on people's roll cards gives people the the freedom to inject a little bit of personality into the game if they so choose, but the game still functions even if they're not inclined. Again, it's it's the distinction that I make between a lot of other social deduction games and, say, Spyfall, where if people aren't feeling in a performative mood, if they can't bring the energy, if they can't bring that kind of performance, then it doesn't really function as well. Plus, the other unfortunate thing was the fact that you had to have, like, a game master, right, that didn't get to... Precisely. ...play the game. Precisely. too bad. Yeah, Roll Camera, I, I have to say, despite the fact that it's mostly satirical in a series of jokes, it is shockingly evocative of the sort of controlled chaos that is movie production. And uh, I'm looking forward to playing it again. That's Roll Camera, the filmmaking board game. You and I got to return to John Company, second edition by Cole Worley, put out by Worley Gig Games. And I think this time it went much more smoothly, well, because it was a second plane, of course, and, and it was with the exact same people, so we got off almost right away, we all helped set it up, and off we went, and the company ran, and we emphasized more of the military aspect this time, and I thought that was interesting. I'm not liking how the games are finishing. Now, there might be lots of arguments of, well, you need to prepare. Well, you need to prepare by getting ahead in score, right? Because in the last turn... The big scoring opportunities are retiring your family members. And you do that at the end of the round, you have a, a random die roll. And there's a chance that you're going to get none. There's a chance you're going to get lots. So people might say, well, just, you know, get ahead and score first and not have to rely on that. Well, then you're sitting in the last turn doing nothing because anyway, I don't think that is a valid argument in my opinion. So therefore it just goes down to random chance at the end. Oh, I agree. It's a huge element of randomness in terms of how well you're apt to do. There are situations where the game can be entirely decided based purely on a 50-50 D6 roll, or sometimes even worse than that, because if you're sitting on a mountain of cash, the, the key way one gets points in John Company, both first edition and second edition, is you convert money into points as your people retire, and they'll retire on a random chance. Cole really has never shied away from games with an incredibly high degree of randomness. Again, if your only experience with Cole Worley has been Root, you don't really know, I think, the core sort of fragility that Cole really loves to bake into his designs. And as a flourish, uh, from a competitive mindset, I, re I, I agree with you. I, I strongly dislike it from a competitive angle. And this is one thing that's going to be the, the same across all scenarios. Some people complain about the, the, the sort of introductory scenario, the 1710 scenario, which is the one that we've played a couple times. But it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, there's going to be a last round, and people are either going to retire or they won't. And so the problem will recur. I'm okay with it by virtue of the sense of narrative and scope that John Company delivers. Our second game was only about two hours, and the amount of things that happened, the amount of interesting development that we saw, both in terms of the company, the situation in India, our own family fortunes, government action, the discussions we had over the interplay between all these different resources. I was going to say the interaction, you know, the deals made and, and the back, not, I won't say back, backstabbing. Oh yeah, yeah. 100%. Uh, really, really compelling. And the structure of the game of John Company 
serves to, it, it's weird. The game can run itself. If you want to just take a step back and things can all, almost operate on autopilot, as it were. It's really, the, cha- the challenge as a, as a player, if you want to do well, and if you want to get the most enjoyment out of the game of John Company, is to recognize those inflection points. To be able to understand when you need to make your move, when you need to sort of either break with whatever coalition you've been forming, or break with the company's interests. Allow me to give you an example. Because this is one of the greatest moves that I've seen probably all year. And it was done by one Michael Walker. It was marvelous. No, really. I mean this sincerely. It was great. And I can say this, especially since it was contrary to my own interests that he did it. But it was so beautiful that I had to just give it respect. Walker was the chairperson of the of the company and therefore was in charge of allocating funds. He was also the person in charge of building ships. Now, normally the person who builds ships has nothing to do. It's the biggest dog roll in the entire board of directors. All they do is they they don't even have discretion about how they spend their money. They just spend all their money and ships get built. And Walker, for several turns in a row, had basically been bent over the table by the director of trade. The director of trade had been moving ships around to force Walker to build ships where he wanted them to. Turn after turn, this happened until Walker finally said, you need to stop doing that or or you're going to regret it. And the president, nah, there's nothing you can do to me. And he kept doing it. So Walker thought about it as the chairperson, like, oh, yeah, that presidency, that presidency of Madras that funds the company, I'm just gonna, not going to send you any money at all. He's like, you wouldn't do that. Watch me, Walker said. And that's what he did. <laughs> Walker spiked the company out of spite just because he was threat. It was marvelous, sincerely beautiful. I-, I have so much respect for what you did there, Walker. I think it was glorious. It brought a smile to my face. <laughs> <laughs> and the lesson was learned. Anyway, so the power plays, the coalitions, the deal-making, all of that is great. The last turn, I agree with you, can leave a sour taste in their mouth. As it is, it's 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 a singular experience. It's, it's quite unlike a lot of other games on the market, which is to say it's a Cole Worley design. And when the, the fact that it only took us a couple of hours when we had the rules down, I think is an indication that this is the kind of thing that I wish we were... If we were in a position where we weren't playing so many new games all the time, I could play this... I, I could easily see this playing week after week after week for for quite some time just because the way things develop and the different scenarios that are involved and the different initial positions. And we haven't even gotten into the deregulation rules, for example, where you're starting to run your own companies. There's a lot there. And so it's a system that I've enjoyed exploring. I would happily explore more. But even in the initial fumbling, halting efforts partially informed by our experiences of the first edition, have been well worthwhile. Wide open gameplay? Not necessarily. But full of narrative, full of development, full of interesting interlocking systems and a, and a lovely little playground in which to engage in deals. Yeah, the flow is there for sure. And the and, it, and the board and the layout and everything does not take away from that. It, it, it leads you there and you know what you're doing. And we'll also have uh, more specific words of praise later when we start talking about random events. That's John Company, second edition. I played a bunch of solo games of Horizons of Spirit Island, in part because I wanted to try the other spirits, and because I was engaged in a period of forced isolation, which I would like to call April 2020, version 2. Uh, not a whole lot of people had a, have a, a fond memory of the isolation of April 2020, and uh, going back to it wasn't nice, but I did decide to ch- turn out a couple games of Horizons of Spirit Island because I wanted to try the new spirits. There was Mud Otter, and then there is Monster from Tremors. Tremors, of course, being the highly influential Academy Award-winning film. I'm sure it won an Academy Award. It was so good. It must have. I, I, it's so good, I'm not even going to bother looking up Kevin Bacon film of the 1990s. Anyway. 
I have to say that Mud Otter was a very, very lovely experience. Mud Otter basically just engages in, in sludge and misery. Uh, you know that scene in The NeverEnding Story where the talking horse drowns? Yes. You know that one that traumatized you as a child and <laughs> yes. traumatized me as a child as well? Atreyu. That, that's Mud Otter. <laughs> that's what Mud Otter does. And the thing is, is that when Mud Otter is not involved in inflicting damage and fear on the invaders precisely because it's just drowning everything in muck, it is delighting in muck. Some of the card art is, is beautiful. Just Mud Otter going, wee in the middle of like sludge. It's, it's fabulous. A lot of personality. I thoroughly enjoy playing as Mud Otter. Tremor's Monster. <sighs> Tremor's Monster is a one trick pony. It does damage. And like many damage dealing uh, spirits, it, it it's just it's really handcuffed because it does damage, and all its starting powers do damage. It's really good at doing damage, but then there's a whole bunch of restrictions about not being able to kill cities. And so I felt like much of the early and mid game for me was just trying to find a way to overcome this one limitation. Right? I felt like I was being behind a gate, and I just needed to circumvent that that single gate. I, I prefer spirits that are a little bit more wide open, have a little bit more in their toolkit. Yeah, engaging with the actual game as opposed to just figuring out how to get your spirit to open up. Well, but that is part of the game. Getting your spirit to open up, there's just different ways that spirits open up, for example. Like, for example, most of the spirits that I really like, including hashtag best spirit, Shadows Flicker Like Flame, and Grinning Trickster Stirs Up Trouble, and Ocean's Hungry Grasp, don't as a rule, engage much with major powers, or at least not the way I play them. If you're playing Ocean Sunker Grasp, you can go to major powers early if you want to. That's just not really the way that I play. And so a number of people who very much love playing with the major powers would much rather play with Bringer of Dreams and Nightmares or Remembrance of Times Long Past. I can't even remember what the spirit is actually called, but Time Crab. They love opening up that way. That's not the way I like to open up. And some people like to open up in terms of dealing damage and clearing out towns and explorers. And for them, I'm sure they could play Tremor's Monster and not have that experience of feeling constrained. That's one of the great things about Spirit Island. It's such an open game system, and there's so many different ways to explore the personality of different spirits that what is constraining for one player is liberating for another. It's very, very, very different in terms of personal preference. And I'm just saying that my personal preference is not to try to overcome those kinds of limitations. Other limitations I don't mind trying to overcome, like, for example, Bringer of Dreams and Nightmares' inability to destroy anything. Bringer of Dreams and Nightmares can't kill anything. It just drives people crazy. Literally. Anyway. Suffice to say, the Horizons of Spirit Island, full disclosure, designed by personal friend R.R. Royce, uh, delights in all the ways that the other spirits of Spirit Island does. I actually prefer intro spirits, and so the fact that Horizons is exclusively intro spirits is is wonderful. I feel that they are often imbued with a lot of personality and indeed sometimes a little bit more of this openness that, that, that I was talking about. And I'm very glad now to try all of them, and like... Every excellent asymmetric game, having tried all of them, I am now keen to return back to my favorites. That is Horizons of Spirit Island. I got to play a game called Terracotta Army. Can you tell it's November? As the glut of, <laughs> of new games it's, pour in just it's before not the December, end of It's the late December, January. So, this is Premyshlov Fornal, or Fornal. And? Adam Kupinski. And this is, put, this is yet another game put out by Borden Dice, but this is not one of their tea games, even though it's Terracotta Army. <laughs> so, for those who don't know, there was a giant clay army unearthed in China. Some people don't know this. Oh, really? You know, these youngsters, Mark. Kids these days? <laughs> the kids these days. But put it on Instagram. Put put some of the clay soldier Terracotta soldiers oh, on yeah. Instagram. They'll, they'll pick up on it then. Then it'll be. It'll be Have big. them do a TikTok dance or something. <laughs> Don't. 
All right. Um, so what you're doing is you're sort of, it is, uh, a, like a spatial puzzle. You're putting out all these warriors and you're trying to get them in rows and columns in order to engage the scoring. There's a different type of scoring every round that's random, comes from this giant pile of tokens. So every game is going to be different. There's a wheel. This is going to be a ongoing theme in the next few games. Uh, you're turning the wheel and then you do a line of the wheel. You put out your meeple. So it's got a very interesting sort of worker placement because there's little meeples and there's big meeples. Little, little meeples can go out anywhere where there's nothing. They can't go where another little meeple is. And they definitely can't go where a big meeple is. <laughs> big meeples get to go wherever they want. <laughs> it's like life. Unless there's another big meeple there, right? So there's a spot oh, okay. for a little one and a big one. But as long as the little one gets there first, it's all good. So you do the whole line. And it's either getting yourself more clay to build more warriors. Or or getting in on the, on the these masters, artisans that you know give you all these special abilities they also give you stuff at the end of every round they let you you know it's an interesting mechanism of having wet clay or dry clay and lots of interesting stuff looking forward to playing it again thankfully we only played it with three players i would definitely not want to play it with four lots of downtime but very interesting you can change the dials before you take your turn things you can do can't wait to play it again terracotta army Got to play Pandemic Fall of Rome. Very happy to do so. A friend of mine uh, commented that they're a huge, huge fan of all the Pandemic variants, but was having difficulty finding someone to play Fall of Rome with them, largely because they didn't have any people willing to play sort of a great man of history version of Borges, right? You know, Pandemic as a cooperative game is a, you know, it's a cooperative game where you save the world by curing diseases, whereas Pandemic Fall of Rome feels an awful, awful lot like more. And now we talk about the great generals in history that, wa that walked around and swung their big swords and killed all the bad people that didn't speak their language. Which, you know, it's not a criticism, it's just some people don't want to play games like that, and that is fine. But, Pandemic Fall of Rome, I find a marvelous variant of Pandemic. And this time, actually, one of the one of the interesting things that sometimes does not get exploited, just based on how the cards flop out, is in order to win, you either make friends with, or you eliminate all of the barbarian tribes. In my experience, you tend to you lean a little bit more, more heavily on the making friends with, because it is very difficult to keep the barbarian tribes bottled up. But this time, perhaps with the benefit of experience, or perhaps just because of the luck of the draw, I happen to notice that there were a couple of important choke points that if we really, really kept well-staffed, it was possible that we could keep those tribes bottled up and only have to make friends with three of them. And that's actually what happened, and that's what shook out. And it's a good thing, too, because we were kind of running out of time. I really enjoy Paul of Rome. It's co-designed by Matt Leacock and Paolo Mori. Paolo Mori is one of our favorite game designers. And we reviewed this a few years ago, and we've been huge fans ever since. Of the variants of Pandemic, it is my favorite. I even prefer it to Pandemic, the, the Pandemic Legacies. But then again, I was never the biggest booster of the Legacies. And uh, the other thing that I, I keep forgetting about, but I, I love being reminded of, is that all the historical variants, Iberia, Rising Tide, Fall of Rome, just utterly gorgeous physical design. If you can make gorgeous card backs, do. If you can, if you can make all the things just lovely to, to, to behold, I mean, yes, I'm not going to say that it's it's completely free of of intensive resources, but between the lovely designs on the back of Pandemic Iberia, especially in a, a Pandemic Fall of Rome, which are also rotationally symmetric, versus some sort of like CGI splash graphic of the name of your game, ugh, one looks infinitely better, and the joy of playing it is so much higher as a consequence. Pandemic Fall of Rome, 
lovely pandemic variant. If you like pandemic, give it a shot. If you don't like pandemic, I would also encourage you to give it a shot because it feels very, very different. Huge fan. I got to play Tiletum. This is an actual tea game by designer Simone Luciani and Daniel Tizzini, put out by Board and Dice. And guess what? There is also a rondelle in this game. Ah. So, But in this one, it's the reverse. You're not putting out workers. You're taking them off. You roll all these different colored dice, and you put them in their proper slots. And if it's a high die, then you're only going to get low actions. And if it's a low die, you're going to get a lot of actions. And you're also going to get resources. So you get resources equal to what's on the, the pips on the dice. So one resource, but six actions or six resources and only one action and the and the dice are also on the action so you're choosing the action and how many action points you're going to get and then you take all the actions and it's mostly you know spreading out over france and germany and building churches much like uh uh terracotta army there's a different scoring uh, mechanism every turn, except in this one, you have to be in that town. It'll tell you what town is scoring and how it's scoring. And so, and you, and you either have to have a, your merchant there or a pillar there. And sometimes it could be across the map and you're struggling to get across and you're putting out houses. There's lots of going on. You're fulfilling all these contracts because most of the resources are just fulfilling the contracts. Some of the resources are for buying other things. Lots going on. I only got to play it once, unfortunately. We'll be playing it more later. Looking forward to exploring it more. Tiletum. We get to play a game called Brazil Imperial. Brazil Imperial is by J. Mendez and published by Meeple BR. And I have to say, first of all, that the framing of this game I find interesting. First of all, because I think it's great that this is very much a labor of love of Brazilians who wanted to share Brazilian history with the rest of the world, and, and, and their enthusiasm for Brazilian history is very evident throughout both the game itself and the accompanying historical booklet, 12 pages, chock-a-block full of biographies of, of, of prominent Brazilians. And I'm absolutely in favor of more emphasis being placed on stories from South America, stories coming from East Asia as opposed to about East Asia, Africa, you know, just basically the Southern Hemisphere writ large. But there were a couple of framing issues that were a little bit weird. Like in the 12 page document, they talk, a, they talk more about the abolition of slavery than the, you know, 350 the, years the during non, which there the was. Non-abolition yeah, exactly. All the stuff prior to the abolition of slavery. Uh, they talk a lot about the, uh, happy, friendly, uh, meeting in 1500 between the Portuguese and the indigenous people. They kind of skip over all the rest of it. They talk a lot about the Jesuits that were really down with the indigenous people and all the people they converted and, like, yeah, you can absolutely talk about the abolitionist efforts. You can talk about the, the, the positive contact between the Jesuit and the indigenous peoples. You might want to give equal time or at least indeed any mention at all to any of the other stuff. Anyway, that having been said, uh, Brazil Imperial is a game that that is very strongly reminiscent of Scythe in terms of its gameplay in a lot of different ways. So the action selection mechanism is exactly the same. You can upgrade your actions in a very similar way. The way the resource manipulation works is very similar in terms of the fact that there are these resources on the map and, and there's nominally a military layer superimposed on top of it. I could go on and on about the similarities, but suffice to say that almost everyone has observed the similarities and I think that those observations are well-founded. It is not just one element, it's several elements operating in conjunction with each other. Now, that is not to say that that makes it an illegitimate design. There are novel elements that are not present inside, 
Uh, and indeed, they, they are combined in ways that you don't see elsewhere. And much of Euro game design is iterative after all, so I don't want to go on too much about the similarities. Walker, what did you think of Brazil Imperial? I enjoyed it. I think I picked the wrong scenario. In the back of the book, it gives you all these different sort of map layouts and scenarios. And I just picked the first one for three player because that's where we're playing. Because I didn't, like, I had read the rules. I internalized the rules. I knew how to play, but I didn't, you know, until you actually see the mechanisms sort of engage. That's why most of the time we actually play a game before we talk about it. Some of the time we actually play. No. Rarely we play the game before we talk about it. (laughs) It's true. Um so there's all these rivers, and they really blocked us off from from combat and interacting. It was sort of like, this is our area, and we're going to learn how the game works yeah. and, and have less interaction. And and in, in hindsight, I definitely would not have picked that scenario. I would have liked to sort of interact with all elements of the game. But that being said, I definitely want to get back to it. There was lots of things there that was very interesting. Yeah, all told, I I thought it was fine. I mean, personally, I would probably rather play Scythe. For one thing, the incentive structures in Scythe seem more coherent and more consistent. Uh, Brazil Imperial ends up feeling an awful lot like a point salad. Like, more or less, everything you're going to do is going to be a couple points. Well, you could buy a painting. A painting's worth a couple points. You could build a building. A building's worth a couple points. You could try to complete this mission. This mission's worth a couple points. As opposed to the star system of... Of uh, Scythe, which although it gets you to the same place, ends up feeling a little bit more con- uh, a, a little bit more focused because you've got these stars and you know that you, that one of the ways you can precipitate the end game is by getting rid of them, but that is by no means an obligation. And I also felt, especially in the context of the introductory scenario, that the tension introduced by the possibility of military aggression wasn't really there; it wasn't internalized there in the context of Brazil Imperial. The movement system is also weird and counterintuitive. Even by the end of the game, I hadn't quite internalized how you were able to move and when. They've decided in in Brazil Imperial, rather than making movement a specific kind of action you do, rather it's tacked on to every other action you do. And at first, that gives you a certain degree of freedom. Units get to move every turn, and that's great. But the problem is, is that there's this special movement and it's different for each kind of action. And so while this, this movement allows you to move to a city or this movement allows you to move to one of your buildings or, and I, I, I just never was able to internalize how to exploit that in anything remotely resembling a coherent way. Furthermore, there was no pressure to go out and expand in a way that really interfaced with their players at all. And I don't think that's exclusively a problem with the rivers. So, again, in the context of Scythe, there's a drive to get to the middle because there's this big factory and the factory gets gives you something interesting. And so there's a lot of conflict that's driven purely by that. Furthermore, you have to move around the map to get new resources. And in Brazil Imperial, you never really have to do that. You can just, as you say, live in your own corner, build whatever you want to build and be there's happy. a little bit of pressure to get to the unknown areas, right? Because they, they did have a little bit... I'm not saying it's huge, but it's, it was something. The other thing I didn't feel that there was like, I don't want to continuously comparing it to Scythe, but in Scythe, the resources were much more tighter and you sort of had to plan like four turns and ahead. It's like, okay, I need this, I need this, and I don't want to do this yet because that would be inefficient. <laughs> so I want to do this first. But in Brazil, in Brazil, it's like, well, I got a bunch of resources and it's just, you know, I can refresh all of them with just one action and... It but it's it still, I still think that it would appeal to people who love planning out four turns in advance in the same way that, that you know, you read these strategy guides or strategy discussions about Scythe. It's like, well, here's the first 15 turns you could, you should take. And I think that people who approach Scythe that way will 
appreciate Brazil Imperial in exactly the same way because you can sort of pre-plan your actions, especially if you're inclined, especially if you want to drive the end of the game and satisfy your missions as quickly as possible. You can just plot out which actions you should do in whatever order. We were kind of just, you know, playing with the different systems and getting a little bit of the, this, that, and the other. And so, as an example, when I looked at the last mission I had to accomplish, I'm like, oh, well, I, I could have been building towards that, but I just decided not to, and I was just messing around and getting random stuff. So, <laughs> so that's, that's again, we're not comparing it to Scythe just for, yeah. just, just to be difficult. It is the natural comparison set, and they're so similar in terms of gameplay style that the differences stand out all the more in terms of my preferences. And, I mean, you talked about the, the, the pressure to go in and get random, those, those random little exploration tiles. I infinitely preferred the story encounters of Psy, those beautiful little pictures with a strange little vignette where you could go, like, steal a goose or something. Yes. <laughs> like, just amusing and charming as opposed to weird random stuff. Another way in which uh, the, the Brazil Imperial resource manipulation didn't satisfy as much, me as much, although this, again, is very, very much a matter of, matter of taste, is the game set up a very, very hard barrier of getting a particular kind of resource called science. There's a whole bunch of things that you need to do or would like to do in order to get very powerful effects that require science. Getting to science is nominally very, very hard. And so you're supposed to be, I think the expectation is that you devote a considerable amount of efforts to getting your first science. Because once you get some, you can get others, uh, get more science, and that's fine. And I really didn't like how, you know, I internalized that and thought, oh, well, that's kind of interesting, and that's going to determine how I progress from mid-game to end-game. And then I saw, over the course of the game, random events just hand you and the Alpha Gamer science just through, it was like, oh, I pulled this card. It said, play this for a science. Great. Good for you. Uh, uh, all right. I guess I'll... Not sit, have science. Not have science. and <laughs> Earn it the old-fashioned way. It was just strange. I was expecting it to play into the sort of very, very structured, plan-ahead uh, element of the action programming. But instead, they decided to mix that up with resources falling from the sky at random intervals. So I thought that that was a little bit discordant. There's another, one other element. It didn't play the way I wanted to, but still was sort of novel when I read it. Like you sort of hinted at, there are three phases to the game, and you actually have three different uh, action markers. Because after you go to the second age, you take your first age action marker, and you flip it over, and you put it underneath one of your actions, and it makes it more powerful. I thought it was, you know, fairly novel, even though the upgrade wasn't substantial or really made that much difference. Yes, it was a new way to upgrade actions that you didn't see in the, in the direct progenitor, namely Scythe. Because, you know, in Scythe, you upgrade actions as well in a couple different ways. Brazil Imperial kind of has the same way. But yeah, transitioning to a new phase and choosing one of your action, one of your possible actions to upgrade in this way for free was interesting. But as you say, sadly, the upgrade wasn't particularly potent until you got to age three. The age three upgrade was a little more potent, but even then, not as much as one might have hoped. That was Brazil Imperium. Imperial. Imperial. I got to return to Oak. I'm enjoying this more and more than I play it. This is designed by Wim Gooseness and published by Game Brewer. You're playing druids. You have a hand of three cards at the beginning of the game, and you have some druids. You're playing the card, and it'll, you're picking which action you want on the card. Placing the druids out on the board, you get to upgrade these druids, which... My druid has a plastic hat. It's true. Now, these are the, the barriers of entry that I think that there are because all of the druids of which there's like six, they all have special abilities and they're all different. There's this giant creature deck that you're going to be buying creatures of. And every single one is different. You have to reference the book and say, okay, you've got a new creature out. It, it gets to do this, even though the, the abilities are very 
interesting and they and you they give you advantage very good but still more stuff you have all these potions that are different all of these different things you have you can upgrade all your cards that change all the actions so big learning barrier but still worth it because every game is going to be different because you have these three stacks of master potions that you're going to be brewing during the game and there's one two and three and you have uh, like about I think there's nine in each stack and you're only going to be using one of each, each game. So it's going to be totally different. There are sets of components that you only use in certain circumstances when certain potions are in play. All of that stuff is very interesting. You're racing up this tree, you're blocking spaces, all sorts of interesting stuff. Enjoying every play of Oak. It really needs to get a little more buzz. Well, maybe you can talk about it on a podcast. Ah, that's true. I could tell them that I really enjoyed it. Maybe someone will listen. Doubtful. Mark, I got back to Frostpunk. Oh, boy. Because I had I had windows of opportunity to play it. Mm-hmm. And I am enjoying it, but I, w- I can't recommend it. <laughs> sure. And Unless, you know, people really love the video game and, and solo game a lot and have the time. Because just the setup alone, never mind the playing time, it, it is huge. But I find it very interesting. You, you can sit and puzzle it out. Your people are starving. You need certain buildings. You need to make crucial decisions on getting buildings out, you know, like sort of, okay, we're going to have to let people get sick these first couple of turns. In the game that we played, we got uh, some food on the map when we, when we started, I got none. So Mm. food right off the beginning was harsh. So I'm like fighting against that right off the beginning. And, you know, you can see it's one of these games where it's like, oh, next time, next time I'm going to try to get this building out. (laughs) There's forests and all sorts of interesting things. I'm going to be keeping Frostpunk because, uh, it's pretty well the only solo game. I know I've talked about playing some solo games, not very many. I've never returned to them. This one more than likely will keep returning because there's all sorts of different missions and scenarios. And I would like to, once again, got destroyed in this one again. This really cool furnace mechanism where it gets getting continually colder and and heating things gets harder and harder. Anyway, Frostpunk, love it. Designed by Adam Kapowski and put out by Gas Cannon Unplugged. Those are the games we played last week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, Calico is getting a full app. This episode is brought to you by the Spring Cleaning Champions, Manscaped. This season, make sure to groom your carpets and the drapes with the leaders in below-the-waist grooming. Clear out that winter bush with Manscaped's Lawnmower 5.0 and watch your confidence bloom like the springtime flowers. Embrace the season and join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with our special offer. Go to manscaped.com and use code SOWRONGGAMES for 20% off plus free shipping. Whether you're looking to craft your signature look or clean up that neckline, Manscaped has the right tools for the job. Introducing the season's champ, the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra. It features two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blade heads, dual LED spotlights, and sleevers rejoice, it's waterproof and comes with a swank carrying case. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SOWRONGGAMES at manscaped.com. Nothing like a little spring cleaning in your pants. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. 
We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. We liked Calico. It was a cute little game. Calico literally hurt my head. <laughs> it is. It's, it's well. It's well designed. I mean, liked is a loaded term. It's well designed. I can recommend it for people who like that kind of thing. I never want to play Calico again. <laughs> this one has cute little cats crawling on the quilt because it's all digitized, unlimited sort of scenarios. Wait, you mean I can get cat pictures on my phone? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Wow. Just so. All sorts of new scenarios coming in. New sort of end game goals. They're going to be adding stuff. Looks very cute. Definitely going to give it a try. You know, that's a that's a good way of adding digital support. Given that Calico is basically consists of a set of scoring conditions, you can effectively program in an infinite number at no cost into the app, and that would be a good way to have aftermarket support. Just so. Sad news. Trick Track, the French board game website that has been around since 2000, has been shut down by Asmodee. Asmodee bought it. And then they decided they didn't want it anymore. So it's gone. Now, of course, <clears throat> to a certain extent, this is kind of offering a funeral to someone who's been dead for a few years because Tic ceased being an independent source of information for a while and basically became what some fear Board Game Geek is increasingly becoming itself, namely a set of sponsored promotional materials and glitzy videos rather than a database of information. Anyway, as somebody who did make use of information on the website and who has fond memories of reading articles and interviews by a variety of French board game publishers and designers on that site, I, for one, am a little bit disappointed, despite the fact that, as I say, its recent editorial direction of the past few years have meant that I haven't had cause to visit much lately. So long, Tritrack. You'll be missed. Other sort of maybe sad news, Mythic Games... Uh, made some announcements this week. They wanted to sell off a bunch of their IPs. So Simon is now in charge of Super Fantasy Brawl, Enchanters, and Steam Watchers. That might be interesting. And Monolith Games has purchased Reichbusters and Solomon Kane. And there's a nice little disclaimer at the very bottom of that. It said, Note, Monolith has no connection with the Solomon Kane pre-orders made on Mythic's game store. <laughs> Please don't bother us. We have nothing to do with it. <laughs> and then and then some other questionable things just before we started recording I got an email saying flash sale for mythic games all darkest dungeon stuff 50% off 
So I'm not sure where this is going. They say they, they claim that they're, they want to concentrate more on, 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 in order to focus on their darkest dun- dungeon, hell and Anastair games. But I'm hoping I never try to read between the lines about sales. No, because it, it's, it's, it's hard. It's too hard to tell. I, I liked a lot of their output. Uh, the head of the company was putting out videos every week. They seem to support their stuff all the time. So I'm hoping for the best. Darkest Dungeon was pretty impressive. I mean, I don't have much cause to go back to it because we don't need another campaign game. But in terms of executing a vision of a board game without going too far into the weeds. <laughs> yeah, like if we had no other campaign game. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It would absolutely be a candidate. But I mean, it, it can't compete to Oathsworn. And our enthusiasm for the IP is not such that it can overcome the fact that in terms of gameplay, it is not as compelling as Oathsworn. Just so. I just want to make an editorial clarification because I realize I've been, and I, I say this sincerely, somewhat irresponsible with my language over the course of the past few months. And this is, I just want to clarify something for the record, and I'll try to be more conscientious about my use of language going forward so I won't have to issue future such cl- clarifications. When I talk about people as being sweaty tryhards, this is not an epithet. This is not an insult. I'm of the opinion that the difference between being a sweaty tryhard and a filthy casual, it's kind of like Myers-Briggs. Some people are INTJ, some people are sweaty tryhards, some people are filthy casuals. The point to emphasize is as follows. Number one, we're all dirty. And number two, <laughs> it's just a difference in mindset. Number three, be tolerant of people who are not of your particular... It's like a set of intuitions about background assumptions. You can't argue into somebody to preferring chocolate over vanilla. Some people are filthy casuals. They can't be told to become sweaty tryhards. And it's just fun to say sweaty It's tryhards. also fun to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, keep in mind, most of the time when I'm talking about sweaty tryhards, I'm talking about Walker's sweaty tryhards tendencies and inclinations. And so naturally I use it as an insult because I'm talking about Walker, but that's a Walker thing, Yikes. not a tryhard thing. No, I'm, I'm, not, I'm being sincere here. I have nothing against sweaty tryhards. I mean that sincerely. I'm just not one of you. And similarly, I don't think you should have anything against me, even though I'm not one of you. I am a filthy casual. It is the nature of things. I'm not interested in developing skills. I am a lazy person. I, not all uh, filthy casuals are lazy. I, however, am. So just, just a bit of clarification. I don't mean as an insult. I'm sorry if it sounds like one. I assure you, we're all dirty at the end of the day. We're all just dirty, dirty gamers. Dirty, dirty. Dirty boy. You know, for someone who thinks we're all dirty, you might think I'd be in favor of sleeves. I think we should substitute Myers-Briggs. So in, instead of Myers, the, the Myers-Briggs disjunctions, right, we should have sleever, non-sleever, uh, jock, nerd, Try hard, casual. We could we could come up with this. We could have I a like pretty. It, I like this. Yeah, I like yeah. It. You I like, like this, it? Yeah. We can get there. We can get there. All right. So we like we like the crew trick taking game. The same people are making a game called Inside Job. So like I talked about earlier, they're taking trick taking games to the maximum. Now there'll be some sort of trader element inside a trick taking game. So you sort of have to now watch what cards people are playing because the trader doesn't have to play. The lead suit. So that might be interesting. Looking forward to trying that. We love all trick-taking games, so this will be no exception, I'm it's sure. It's true, and I, I found Shaman's fascinating, which is the which is the trick-taking game with, with hidden traders. I, 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 I never... It always felt really fragile, and, and, and I never had success showing it to a group, but conceptually, it's fascinating. So I look forward to trying that. I like Icky. I've kept Icky. I want to keep, continue to play Icky. And it's going to get an expansion. Akibono. So that is exciting. I love expansions. I love 
tacking more stuff onto games that I already enjoy. This is going to be a bridge, and you're going to be able to trade with ships and other merchants that come across the bridge. More stuff for Icky. That will burn. It will all burn. (laughs) (laughs) So says the Prophet Walker. Because this is interesting. I thought it was very interesting. Stefan Feld City Collection. Queen Games opened up a Kickstarter. It only went for nine days. Hmm. You could pick up all of Steffenfeld's collection. They only wanted $5,000. They got $28,000 with only 177 backers. This Kickstarter had no updates. Not a welcome to... Wait, wait, sorry, sorry. It was $5,000? Their their goal was 5000 Their goal was $5,000. Sorry. No yeah. updates. No updates. Not like a welcome to the thing. Not... Not a thank you for backing. Yep. Not not a interesting. Know, we got our goal. Yeah, it was a we're opening up shop. Yeah, buy what we're going to make anyway, so we get all the money. <laughs> so I should say it allegedly, <laughs> and you have nine days to get it, and then we're gone. So I take it from this presentation that you object to Kickstarter operating basically as a retail outlet. No, I just object to Queen Games. <laughs> <laughs> Also, so says Walker. <laughs> Allegedly. <laughs> that is the news and why it doesn't matter. On to our topic for the week, which is random events. So, Mark. Yes. What is a random event? Well, it depends. It's random. All right. So, let's talk about Siege of Rundar. Okay. Is the orc deck random events? Telling us where the orcs come and where the catapults go and... <laughs> Why are you probing me this way, Walker? Why am I being subjected well, to this I, level I, I, of interrogation? Well, no, well, I'm trying to I'm trying to establish the, a baseline of what constitutes an event. <laughs> I okay. So, especially when it comes to co-op games, if it's just the fundamental driver of the game, it's the, if it's the basic engine of the game, I don't tend to put that in the same category as random events. Usually, the random events that that I think of are the ones that add flavor on top of anything else that's going on. So, again, the infection deck in Pandemic. That isn't really... I mean, yes, there are events that are random, so from a strict constructionist interpretation, yes. I'm thinking more of, you know, to to pick from one of your favorite Euro games, the events that happen in Orléans. Every round there's an event, and usually it's some relatively minor thing, like trade in a food for three points, or this round you can do this other action at some discount, or what have you. Uh, All the way to uh, random events that are more earth-shattering, so generally, if it's the core driver of the game, I don't tend to tend to associate it in quite the same way, but I'm not dogmatically committed to that position. So there's also other event decks that are optional. A lot of games do this, where they have an event deck and they say it's optional. Like we've just played with Planet Unknown. Yes. It was optional. And thank, thank God. Thank goodness. Oh, it was terrible. Oh, those events. So here, here, yeah. <laughs> so I think a term that coined recently was Kickstarter tack on. <laughs> okay. So in defense of Planet Unknown, uh, I think one of the key reasons why it exists is for the solo version. It is mandatory in the solo version. In the competitive version, it's optional. And I think that in the solo version, it's just a, you know, Throw a couple monkey wrenches into your plans. In that case, it's fine. In anything remotely resembling a competitive event, it's borderline garbage. Because this is an example of what sometimes random events can do. 
In Planet Unknown, just to specify, sometimes the event would say, well, go down this track. And for some people, that would end up being a strict benefit because they had, going down a track means that they get to activate the cool Benny again. And for a lot of other people who had just worked real hard to go to just a way station on the way to something cool, just had that progress erased and they get nothing for it. I really hated the event tech in Planet Planet Unknown is such a simple, fun, breezy game. And I'm like, oh, well, I'd like to try the events. No. no and that's the other thing it went to. It was like, here, get this Benny. Next card. Give that Benny back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. What? Okay. At best, and I think that highlights how event cards can be really bad, but it also points to how they can be good. Because sometimes uh, a, a deck of events or tiles or whatever whatever physical mechanism implements them, you can also have them through dice, it can add some kind of arc or broader context to what's going on. Seldom is this done well. Now, uh, an exa- another example, I think, of how this is done not particularly well is a game Yedo. Yedo is, uh, had that Master Deluxe Edition recently. It's the worker placement game where you're going off and doing these missions, and there's just tons and tons of random decks with nonsense and noise in them. And there's also this event deck on top of it, which can be incredibly punitive and asymmetrically punitive in precisely the same way that those random events were in Planet Unknown. In Planet Unknown, a light, breezy game without a whole lot of direct player interaction less offensive in the context of something like Yato, which is already too long and you know supposed to be a crunchier game, yet more offensive. An example of when it's done really, really well, though, I've got a couple of examples of where I think it r- really almost makes the game by itself, not that there are deficient games elsewhere, is, first of all, John Company 2nd Edition. In 1st Edition, the events really did feel more arbitrary to me, especially since it felt because the military system was entirely different in John Company 1st Edition, it felt almost impossible to defend the British East India Company's holdings in India. The moment anybody came to attack you, it was game over, and everyone was going to be sent home packing. 2nd Edition, things proceed not in an orderly pace. You can still get surprised, but you have a general sense of what's what. You can have a broad idea of what's going to be happening in the subcontinent, even when sometimes you only have a couple of events, and sometimes you have up to four the events are one of the most complicated parts of the game, and invariably I have to refer back to the rulebook to see exactly how it works, but interesting things happen, and it's a thing that you have to plan for in the context of the game, and so I think that's an, a good example of random events. What, what, what so do you think Another good that? example is, it's so good, it's just not quite good enough to save the game, would be the crossroad cards from Dead of Winter. Yes. Crossroad cards are amazing. Sometimes they could be frustrating because they always refer to a specific character or they have to do a specific thing and they might not do that. So you might be stuck with this card for a while or you might not get an event card to trigger at all. Yes. But when they do, it really, you know, sort of ties the game together, sort of immerses you further into the sort of story, even though that particular story is painful. <laughs> well, the- well, painful to me. Lots of people yes. enjoy it. I just loathe deck milling. So, I found, well, I found my enjoyment of Dead of Winter to be directly proportional to, well, not directly proportional, to be indelibly tied to the number of crossroads cards that triggered, because you're exactly right. It depends on there being specific people, specific people in play, specific people at specific locations. I have played uh, a game that was interminable because every crossroads card was triggered. And it was just endless reading and endless weird little vignettes that didn't connect to each other. I played painful games of Dead of Winter where practically none of them triggered, and so it was an incredibly dull mechanical exercise. And I played one game, one game of Dead of Winter that seemed great. It was my first game of Dead of Winter, and it was roughly like 
50% of the time we had a crossroads card trigger. We thought it was great. We thought it was a marvelous way to inject narrative. But the problem is it didn't have the appropriate hit rate. If you could if you could build in a greater reliability of getting to that ideal hit rate, then I think you'd I would be willing to overlook a lot more of the problems in Dead of Winter. But as it is, I, I think you're I completely forgotten about that system. You're exactly right. And it's it's ex- it's all about how many of them hit. Another example of random events that I think is, is really great is, well, they're semi-random, and that's Through the Ages. It's my favorite element of Through the Ages. You can devote your political action. If you're not in the mood or if you're not in a position to go stomp on someone militarily, usually it's a if-you've-got-nothing-better-to-do action, you see the event deck. You get a small number of points, and the points, I think, are really there just to make you think it's worthwhile. Because, honestly, in the grand scheme of things, it's a drop of the bucket. And through the ages, scores are huge. And so getting a point early in the game for playing an event card is really not going to make the difference. But the bigger benefit is you know what the event deck is going to look like. And once a certain number of events have triggered, all the events that got played get shuffled and now become the current event. So you know what's coming, you just don't know when. And so if you're sitting there and you've got four event cards you can see it in, so, oh, well, this one benefits scientific development, and I'm really, really good at scientific development. I think I'll play that one. And so it lets you kind of guide the flow of the game in a relatively minor and subtle way while simultaneously injecting that level of random feeling flavor, but nonetheless at the, under the control of the players. I Honestly, I of, of, of many things that I really, really like about Through the Ages, the event system is probably my favorite single element. There's two other games that do that very well. Robinson Crusoe. And that's a game where it really immerses you into the game because, you know, you'll say you fight a snake and it bites you, but you feel fine. Everything's great. Now take this card and put it in my deck, right? And you're like, oh, good lord. Everything's fine. No need to worry. Just take a deck 55. Don't look at it. Don't look, yeah. don't, don't look at it. Everything's fine. Put it in the deck. Yeah, it's great. The other game that does that is the event deck game. The event deck game. Frostpunk, it has yes. three different event decks, right? It's got weather, it's got dawn, it's got dusk. You're passing these laws, and depending on how you pass them, you're putting these cards in different places, and they're going to trigger other cards to be put in the event deck as well. So you're seeding this event deck, and all manner of bad things are going to happen. But I still think it's very interesting because it's you are choosing. You're sort of you know, deciding your fate. And this will come up in other in other things. Do you have another game, or can we go into that? And then, I, I mean, I've got lots of other uh, games that I'd like to touch on, but by, but by all means, let's let's get into it. Well, it's like uh, Ventex that uh, target everyone as as opposed to targeting a certain person. Not so good, but it's ones that you can manipulate, like cards that say, "Well, as long as you give up some resources, you, you know, you, you know, the 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 bad is reduced. You know, it it goes down a little bit." So games like Tracarion, where if you're using the Dark Alley expansion, you can sort of manipulate the event that is coming up. Yes. Soon. Yes, I absolutely like games where you have a certain degree of foresight and you have a certain ability to mitigate or control what direction things are going to happen. Yeah. And sometimes even just the knowledge is enough. For example, uh, every the first thing you do on your turn in a game of roll camera is you pull a problem. They're kind of like events, but they they they're just specific restrictions and Every problem card on its back just has an icon letting you know what style of thing is going on. Now, in the context of a world camera, it's sufficiently tactical that you can't really plan ahead and, and do anything to, to mitigate future problems as a rule. But in contexts where you can just glance at the back of the card and realize, ugh, this is, this is the kind of event that's going to happen and therefore exert some, some degree of forward planning, I do tend to appreciate it when that's an option. 
I know you hate Game of Thrones, but I like how they do it. You have three cards that come up, and one of the cards in the third slot could be, you know, the Wildlings attack. And the first two cards really reduce your resources because you need the you need the, these flags to save you from the Wildlings. But the bidding on the different three areas of power are so important you usually just forget about the wildlings and you have zero when it comes to them and they usually destroy everything and they give benefits depending on who paid the most whether you defeat them or not i like that kind of system my, my key problem i have with game of thrones is act well one of my key problems is is directly related to those event decks because the event decks are the core driver of the game they're not an added level of spice they're not introducing the contours of what's going to happen. They are the key driver of the game. And so, as a context, the game, in many con- in many uh, playings of Game of Thrones, doesn't have any arc driven by the players. It's entirely driven by the event decks. Sometimes, this happens rarely, but it happened to me once, there's no mustering that happens. No more troops for anybody ever. Sometimes you never check supply. So these key elements of the game, where normally you think, oh, well, I have to trade off supply, and when I get things like, sometimes it just doesn't matter at all. Sometimes it matters immediately at the worst possible time. And so when the key drivers of the game, the core systems, are entirely driven by random event decks, that tends not to work in ways that I find satisfying. That happened more in the first edition, and I sometimes enjoyed those circumstances. I think that was, <laughs> I think I think that was Michael Walker back then. <laughs> Michael Walker now probably wouldn't enjoy that so much, but they they did a lot to you know change that up in second edition. Oh, where, okay, where a lot of the cards were multi-purpose. You know, it's like you do one of all of the three. You know. Pick one of those three things so you could force it. Based on, based on whoever's t- top in the track can pick? Correct. Okay. That sounds like a key improvement because, as you say, in a context where you can devote some resources to protect yourself against the vicissitudes of random events, that dynamic tends to be much more satisfying than just everyone gets hit by the fire hose of fate. And so if it's the case you look and say, oh, I don't have much supply, I'd better make sure that supply is never going to get checked, or I have all the troops I need, I better make sure that there's no mustering, I will therefore make sure that I'm at the top of the track. That seems much more satisfying. I might be willing to give that a try if you ever need someone to round out a second edition game then. Sounds good. Next up is... You already talked about Orleans, but it does something uh, that you didn't mention. The fact that it you you reveal the event at the very beginning of the turn. Right. And then you have that whole turn to sort of prepare and, and get what you need to do it. I couldn't think of another. I know there's a few games that do that. I couldn't think of any on the top of my head. But I really love that sort of style. Yeah, well, there's sometimes where I wish it worked that that way. I wish it had worked that way for Dice Realms, for, uh, as an example, right? You remember at the top of every round in Dice Realms, you roll those red event dice, and that determines what's going to happen. It was fine. For a game of that weight, it's okay. And so you try to stockpile food, but sometimes you accept the fact that for a round or two, you're, you're, you're basically subjected to the whim of the dice and you might be forced to lose some points or not that's okay but i'd much rather it be the case where rolling it's like oh there's a famine coming better feed everybody this round and you can actually work towards it to engage in some trade-offs on the back end rather than risk taking on the front end but that's a matter of preference another system that i love but it's kind of silly is civilization right so there's this trading phase where you're trading all these commodities around but some of the cards are events Calamities, yes. Calamities. I think you could call them events. Hmm. And so you're sort of old mating them to people, <laughs> right? Yes. And what, considering the, the brevity of the rest of the game or the complexity of the rest of the game, that part seems, you know, like I said, a little, little silly, 
right? So you're like trading How do you cards. Mean? Or, well, just the fact is like, ha ha, you know, I, tra- <laughs> I traded you the old maid. Okay, for, first of all, I realize it was just a misstatement. I don't think anyone, everyone has ever uh, called civilization brief before, except perhaps in the old Avalon Hill days. No, it wasn't brief. It was uh, simple. Brevity. The brevity of the rest of the game. Brevity, yeah. Brief. Brevity means brief. Does it? I thought it meant the complexity. All right. Well, anyway, the complexity <laughs> of the rest of civilization, it's, it seems a little, you know, not in tune with the rest of the game. Well, it's, it's, I, I see what you're saying. They are kind of a way to in, inject events into the game. And it is the case that their initial influx is semi-random. In fact, one of the ways in which if you're a sweaty tryhard, you can actually start to try to math out where some of the calamities will first introduce Past the first introduction, once they get start shuffled in, then it becomes almost impossible to track when they're going to show up. So at that point, they're they're almost purely random. But there are nonetheless, you know, in, in classic uh, in, in instances, things you can do to mitigate them. Most of the texts in Civilization, for example, are about mitigating the effects of calamities, and uh, knowing what's coming up is therefore an indication. I just I, I'm I'm just reeling from this idea of civilization is brief. I'm just I realize that's not what you said. I'm just I'm just trying to kind of trying to come to grips with it. <laughs> and I'm doing how, a bad. How, how, how were those two words used? <laughs> exactly, I, I, exactly. No, but I, I think it's reasonable to identify the calamities as a kind of event. Uh, I don't know if I. I mean, some people do admittedly find the the calamity trading silly. I think it's great, but. I'm an, I'm an unapologetic I, I, I Francis Tresham fanboy. I, I'm agreeing that it's great too, but I I just think it's sort of out of out of whack with the rest of the game. Fair enough. I mean, it is the one area of most direct player interaction. I mean, there's the military aspect, but generally speaking, that's not of primary concern in a game of of original Civilization. Uh, so yes, in that sense, the, the the trading element is kind of the, the the player interaction glue that holds everything everything else together. So I have one last game that does events. Interestingly, Core Worlds, there's an expansion that you can get. And as you're drawing cards, you're sort of throwing these events on on top of each other. And then once you get to a certain point of, you know, planets and and ro- and uh, troops like normal, then you stop and whatever event happens to be on top is going to be your event for that turn. I think it's kind of as you like flip on it, you're like, oh no, right? <laughs> right? And as you see cards come out, it's like, come on, another event, another event. And, you know, you know, thankfully, you know, another will come where it doesn't. And I just think that's kind of an interesting way to do it. I agree with you. There are two interesting things that Core Worlds events do on top of that. Number one, there's the possibility that it's just going to last for one round. There's also the possibility it could last for several. That's Based true. on whether or not more events come up. Yeah, that, I didn't even think of If that. no more yeah, events come up, that's the event you're stuck with. Yeah. It's going to happen again. So you have some foresight. You can look at the pile and say, well... I don't know what the odds are, but it's more likely to be that event than any other specific event that I can think of. It's true. And the other thing that it does is that Core Worlds graduates its decks hardcore. All the round, all the, uh, the, the round one events are positive. All the events that happen in the first couple of turns of the game are just positive for everybody. Candy for everyone. Here, have some extra actions, have some extra energy. And they're in a way that, unlike a lot of the events that we were complaining about before, don't tend to privilege one player over another based on where they happen yeah. to be at the, the, the given stage of the game. Or it's just a giant event deck, and it's like, oh, well, mass destruction for everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know I mean? yeah, and not- even even the later events that, 
uh, then the later events that tend to be opportunities, you know, trade X for Y or Y for X or something like that. Even the ones that are negative, again, they're re- relatively well calibrated. They're not the kind of thing that's like, well, if you've got five units in your war zone, get smacked upside the head. And the player who just happened to empty their war zone in the previous round laughs and giggles. And the player who is planning for conquest this turn gets punished. They're more sophisticated than that. And, and as a, as a consequence, they don't run afoul of a lot of the problems. Yeah, that, that, that's a good example. So, I mean, in summary, there are lots of ways you can juke this. Like, I, I don't object to randomness in games. I think that there are good ways to use randomness to introduce color, character, arc, tempo, uh, just variety from play to play. But if you do it in a lazy fashion, it can really upend even, even a casual's understanding of the competitive nature of what's going on. And it just doesn't feel good if... I mean, I maintain that past a certain level of play, you're sitting there, you're playing a nominally competitive game, regardless of how much direct interaction there is. The random event that comes up and says, if your name has four letters in it, then you get 75 bonus points. You're like, great, that's a that's an event. Or the other way it will be, you missed your next turn. Or, or you <laughs> turn. But, it, but it won't say that, right? It'll yeah. Say, it'll say, you know, lose a fish resource. And you spent an entire yeah, turn exactly. to get that fish resource. Precisely. Yeah. Just brutal. Yeah, exactly. And the person who was going to get the fish this turn is like, great, I'm yeah. out nothing. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I agree with you entirely. I was exaggerating with, you know, if your, na- if your name has four letters in yeah. it. That's what it feels like. Exactly. It just feels arbitrary, and it just feels like, honestly, sloppy, lazy game design. And it can just leave a sour taste in people's mouth. It, it's even worse, I think, than in some context. If I start a fight with you, and I roll a one and you roll a six, whatever. I took that risk. It happened. But if there's a random event that says, oh, that thing you worked really hard to get for last turn, it's gone. Ugh. Yeah, that's, and it, it says something when I went through a bunch of games that I'm keeping. And it's like, none of them have event decks. Like, what, <laughs> what, what am I going to talk about today? And it's like, nope, 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 nope. It's just, but we have had good recent experiences with events. It's true. I mean, I really like the way the events work in John Company 2nd Edition. It feels, it doesn't feel like an organic development of some sort of con- uh, uh, narrative of the subcontinent, but it is a thing that you need to keep aware of and plan. I and mean, there is this development that happens, even if it's not particularly organic. I love the way events happen in Through the Ages. I think you're right to identify that there's a certain element of eventiness in the the Calamity cards in Civ, it can really give a sort of interesting injection of narrative and structure and arc and tempo to a game, especially if the cards themselves, if the events themselves, if the results themselves are well calibrated and well integrated with the rest of the game. But that, of course, is a difficult design task, so it's not a surprise that it seldom happens well. Yeah, and when it's when sort of like in the Planet Unknown where it's tacked on at the end, it obviously has a lot <laughs> less chance of working. I, I'm trying to be charitable and just assume that it was always primarily intended for solo play, and the com- the option to include it in competitive play has some sort of hidden brackets where it says, and we don't recommend it, close brackets. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Fair Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at SoWrongGames.com, one of my favorite websites on the internet, slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks for spending time with us. We really appreciate it, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Squirrel.
squishy fruit and squishy fruit squishy fruit 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 at parker our purpose is simple we want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently by using more sustainable practices by developing better technologies we keep moving forward with each new idea innovation and partnership We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.